In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. That's what we were told. Most Americans never believed Lee Oswald was the lone gunman, for excellent reasons. In fact, there were at least six shooters who fired from eight to ten shots or more who are identified here. We have, finally, the solution to the greatest murder mystery in history, laid out for the world to see proof after proof after proof. Photos were faked, the body was changed, x-rays were altered, the home movies were fixed. Fifteen experts contribute to a 529-page book with 1,037 photos and diagrams in black and white and color. Hi, this is Gary King. If you'd like JFK, who, how, and why, and would like to support the new JFK show, then go to PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com. This is uh, Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. It looks like one of those scenes of an old building being purposely dynamited and blown. When we are successful, I'm just a patsy, and we will be. We're ready to make, uh, to come to the microphone, so we'll listen up. A new world order. So my name is Robbie Parker. It might have appeared that way, but from my close-up inspection, there's no evidence of a plane having crashed anywhere near the Pentagon. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Live from the Media Broadcasting Center. 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 This is uh, Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, with my very special guest today, Carl Herman, who's impressed me tremendously. He's a brilliant guy, started at Harvard, usually writes for Washington's blog. He recently did a sensational piece doing a statistical calculation about how it could be the case that we have 20 women, as Sandy Hook, who claim to be the mothers of first graders that average a birth age of 36. There's a 10-year discrepancy there from the average. Carl discovered that this was like on the order of 109.4 quintillion to one, the odds against it, where what was being confirmed here is that they fabricated the children of Sandy Hook using photographs of other kids when they were 10 years younger. Carl, that's what you have reinforced with your brilliant work. Happy to do so, Jim, and thank you for the invitation to join you in a conversation we discussed how to introduce this and frame this, Uh, you and I together have close to 100 years of academic scrutiny and professional expression of exactly what we're going to talk about. How can we discern the factual reality versus what we receive, which is the most viciously psychopathic spin to distract and to keep Americans uninformed? Isn't that the truth? You put it very well. Uh, The complicity of the press is monstrous. It's been infiltrated by the CIA especially. Uh, William Colby, then its director, as long ago as 1975, testified to Congress that the agency owned everyone of significance in the major media. And today the situation is overwhelmingly worse. We're getting bombarded 24-7, Carl, by propaganda and disinformation from ABC, NBC. CBS, 
CNN and MSNBC, where CNN is CIA 24-7, and NBC is a liberal light variation thereon. It really is, Jim. And as a professional educator who has had, um, this will be my 34th year teaching uh, in a couple of weeks, I've had a lot of opportunity to road test these ideas. And what I wanted to do is, this will be the first of four one-hour discussions that we're having. And uh, from my perspective, I reference you and I frame you as kind of a uh, founding father of the rebirth for America. That's the possibility that we're going on. And as a teacher, I'm a National Board Certified Teacher in History, Government, Economics. I'm credentialed in Mathematics. I find that it's helpful to take uh, the areas where people have to make the smallest leap so that they can have a breakthrough experience and shatter that hypnotic illusion of corporate media and official voices to be able to see the facts. So this first discussion that we're going to have, and you can see this screen okay. Yes, yes. All right, good. So um, as a teacher of government and of history, one of the first things that we need to acknowledge is that Americans are under the delusion that we have limited government under a constitution. And I'm going to walk you through with your analysis and contributions of three of the following stories of history that all I'm going to do is add a few areas of fact, point out a few areas of disinformation, and then this, uh, these areas of history are uh, conservatively accepted as absolutely true. I am unaware of any attempt to even refute um, what I'm going to present to you. And this will put a frame on familiar history that, by golly, the U.S. has been a rogue state empire for centuries. I think you, you make a powerful case, and I'm looking forward to this. You could frame it just a hair better, Carl, by, yeah, moving just a, a – yeah, there you go. Perfect. perfect. Good. Good. Do, you, do you want to play the short video? Nah. Now, what I'll do is I'll provide what uh, we can and give the maximum amount of time for our analysis. Um, so this is an article series where, as a teacher of history, I've looked at dozens of history textbooks. And one of the areas, one of the, the third hour that we're going to have is on public education being bullshit, lies of omission and commission to stupefy Americans as you see here, these are the 11 sections. Um, I'm going to stick to three, and I'm going to point out the main facts, and then you and I will provide some analysis, and um, that should take up an hour. So the three areas that I'd like to do is to talk about how the U.S. stole almost half of Mexico in 1846, and then we'll go to World War I, and then we'll go to the Vietnam War, although... The audience is looking at all this here, and uh, they can pause the video at any time and revisit these topics. So you ready? Yeah, sure, sure. And of course, you know, the influx of uh, Mexicans into Southern California has been described by residents there where I was born and grew up, you and I both at Huntington Memorial Hospital as Montezuma's Revenge, Mexico reclaiming the land the United States stole from Mexico way back when. And we did steal it. Um, and I like the idea of going back into history because the, uh, the trauma 
of those lie-started, treaty-violating wars of aggression by the U.S. that kills hundreds of thousands of people, up to millions of people in world wars, is difficult to embrace. My older brother, Jim, is a psychologist, and he, he's also my tennis partner, and he tells me that I have no idea how powerful cognitive dissonance is for people to do whatever they can to push away uncomfortable facts. And that is consistent with my own experience. Therefore, taking a step into history where we have, you know, over a century of time to process this information may allow people to consider the possibility that the U.S. really is an ongoing rogue state empire. Well, I think the evidence is overwhelming, Carl. So I think it's terribly important that you should adduce it in a manner that is uh, understandable by the American public. All right, so here we go. Uh, The article series is in 11 sections. I start out with a definition of rogue state empire, which is basic textbook. Uh, The fundamental thing to understand, although there are a lot of components of a rogue state, is that it's a bully, it's an empire. Um, It is a nation that uses its military might to steal resources, both natural and then to use the human resources to maximize the profit from the land. Uh, It is a viciously psychopathic, sadistic way to for evil. And one of my favorite definitions of evil, Jim, that uh, I guess I found in a dictionary when I was a student in college and then I couldn't find it again, was a preference for service to self over the well-being of others. So uh, that's well, the, 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 the essence of morality is treating other persons with respect, Carl. So that's a very close proximity. And of course, much of the root of the evil you're addressing is embedded in Milton Friedman's principle that the only social obligation of corporations is to maximize profits for their stake, their, their stockholders, where, of course, its profits are, are the difference between the the selling price of an item and the actual cost of its manufacture, which is determined by natural the value or cost of the natural resources, value or cost of the labor, value or cost of the taxes, value or cost of advertising, and so forth. There are motives inherent in that principle to exploit the natural resources of other countries, to pollute the environment without cleaning up, to go for minimal wages and fewest benefits possible, to create monopolies and to evade taxes, all the practices we see so prevalent in the United States today. And for that maxim and other work, Milton Friedman was given no less the Nobel Prize of Economics. Yeah, it's well stated, Jim. Um, in contrast with what Americans are told that they have, a limited government, if anybody wants to go and review those basic concepts that we all learned in school, um, there's one resource, but let's just jump in. I think it's more powerful to go ahead and show it through example. So everybody who goes through school remembers the story of the 1846 war on Mexico. And uh, there's a couple of points in here that will remind people, but just a little critical thinking for this gym shifts the frame to really see that this was a lie-started, treaty-violating war of aggression with the most outrageous paper-thin lies. Now, our textbooks, well, let's just go ahead and and jump in here. 
Well, right. reasons to believe that even our invasion of Afghanistan was motivated by its vast mineral resources, which include uh, the largest deposit of lithium, which is used in the triggers for nuclear weapons and in computers and uh, components for electric car batteries in the world outside of Bolivia, so that we continue this practice, which General Smedley Butler deplored in the pamphlet he published at the end of his career as the most celebrated Marine Corps general in history, War is a Racket, where he realized that he'd been involved in military deployments that were intended to enhance the profit motives of American banks and corporations. Yeah, he called himself a high-paid pimp. So in this example of history, um, textbooks, I was interested, um, you know, as a a high school teacher of, of government, economics, and of history, we're tasked with understanding the history of the world and, uh, and bouncing around for those subjects, I was struck by a particular phrase regarding the war with Mexico and that it was regarding a treaty dispute. Um, so finally, uh, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I finally read that carefully enough and said, really? I mean, understand or a border dispute. Understanding where the borders is is one of the most important things to make clear between nations, and I looked it up because the textbook didn't say, and this was the Adams-Onese Treaty. The Adams-Onese Treaty was in 1819, and it really is in language as crystal clear as you can get in letter and intent. So you can see this map okay here, Jim? Yeah, sure. All right, good. So that's the border. And the language of the treaty in 1819, and this was between the United States and Spain, and then formally transferred to Mexico when Mexico won their independence, it's this red line here. And the border here at the Sabine River, the Red River, up to the Arkansas River, and the language of the treaty says, all of this to the north and to the east shall forever belong to the United States. Now, in really good legal language, Jim, You both state it as a positive and negative, so the treaty also says that this territory shall never be a claim of Mexico. Conversely, on the south and the west of this line shall always be Mexico and never be a claim of the United States. So what happens? We have a couple of other maps here to clearly see this. Um, Texas gets their independence from uh, Mexico and became an independent country for nine years and then is annexed by the United States. The annexation is the violation of the treaty, Jim, because it's the U.S. promise to Mexico that this land of Texas shall never be part of the United States. Now, that is the lie of omission that is left out of all the textbooks. Now, Texas becomes their own country. Uh, The United States wants Texas. They made a couple of offers to buy Texas, which, you know, the only reason that you want to make a purchase of something is that you're buying something and you're getting a good deal from it. And Mexico wasn't getting a good deal from selling it at any price reasonable to Washington. So uh, Mexico declined. In the war of what happened is that the United States then provoked a war. They sent U.S. military 400 miles into the land of what was agreed to be part of Mexico forever 
at the modern-day border between Mexico and the United States. Uh, they sent out patrols until they finally evoked a military response from Mexico. And then the United States president, James Polk, in a famous speech that is quoted in textbooks, claimed American blood was shed on American soil. War began. Uh, the United States invaded Mexico, killed about 50,000 Mexicans. About 5,000 Americans were killed. And at the conclusion of the war, the United States purchased this land, which was really no more than a bribe to the uh, Mexican oligarchs to surrender the land for a payoff from the United States. A telling part of this was what made Abraham Lincoln famous, Jim. And uh, this is the key part of the story. Honest Abe had his nickname enforced as a freshman member of Congress. He stood up in Congress and was wise and had the intellectual integrity and the moral courage to read the treaty, the Adams-Onese Treaty, and to ask his fellow members of Congress to demand that President Polk come to Congress and point to the spot on the map that the president claimed where Mexico invaded the United States. Now, Lincoln didn't have the votes because both political parties at the time wanted this war in order to acquire this land. So what Lincoln received instead was a... Um, an attack from his fellow politicians of both parties, calling him unpatriotic, and they called him a name, a specific name, Jim. Do you know that story in history of what Lincoln was called for demanding that the president come to Congress and point to the spot on the map? Fill, fill me in, Carl. They called him Spotty Lincoln. Spotty Lincoln. Because he demanded that the president point to the spot on the map. 400 miles inside of promised land to Mexico forever. So just a little bit of critical thinking on these facts that aren't in dispute demonstrate for sure that a United States president knowingly violated a treaty in order for uh, the United States to have a war of aggression with an obvious motivation reinforced from previous attempts to buy the territory, but when Mexico wouldn't sell, the United States just lied to the American public and to our military for an invasive war of aggression. Yeah, just, just uh, explaining the history of the area that was owned by uh, Mexico as opposed to the United States in, in relation to the treaty is, is enormously revealing of the present state of affairs and why, you know, most Americans just have no knowledge of history whatsoever, Carl. It's really deplorable and terribly important to be compensated for in such ways as remain possible today. Yeah, and that's really kind of the outline of these four talks that we're going to be having, because as a teacher of history and of mathematics, I'm fully aware of the propaganda going on to keep Americans stupid. Um, I think we should remind people as well what a treaty actually means. Part of what uh, I really like about teaching math is that we take definitions very seriously, Jim. A treaty is defined by the United States Constitution in Article 6, 
as U.S. supreme law of the land. So that means if a United States president agrees and two-thirds of the Senate ratifies, then that is what the United States promises to do. And yet, as we're going to see in this little visitation of history, and as most of your viewers are aware, the United States just makes treaties by convenience and then violates them, um, likely with whatever bullshit gets the most amount of votes in these closed meetings where they determine what spin to attempt to wage these wars of aggression. I particularly like your point about defining both positively and negatively the boundaries as being, as you put it, crystal clear. It certainly leaves no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, Like any study, Jim, law uh, can be quite virtuous and lawyers are trained to get to the factual evidence that is independently verifiable and objective. Lawyers are also trained to, um, to practice to win. Nobody hires a lawyer to lose, and uh, that's why we get so many lawyer jokes and comparing lawyers to sharks, because, uh, and most of the politicians in Washington are lawyers, so they really are trained as liars rather than accurately representing fair rules that we've agreed to play by. That's right. They're legal muscle. They're enforcing a position to the detriment of others, regardless of the merits of justice, equity, fair play, and morality. All right. So that's our first visitation of history, stealing half of Mexico and uh, in the process, war murdering 50,000 Mexicans and 5,000 American troops and pointing out that 170 years later, we still have to lie about the facts of this war in order to provide a cover for people so that the gross violations that are ongoing in our world of the present remain unrecognized. Because if it was clear that the United States lied to violate the treaty for a war, invading war of aggression, we would look at the present differently. All right, so anything else that you want to say about that one, or are you ready to go? No, I think that's nice and clear-cut, Carl, and it's unmistakable. You can't misunderstand what happened here if you simply know the most basic elements of the history as you have defined them. Yeah, and importantly as well, if anybody has any uh, awareness of any attempt to refute or to correct the history that I just presented, I want to see it. Uh, I never have. I'm not aware of any. I'm just presenting what any comprehensive history course, course will teach. Uh, but you got to go to college in order to find those courses because in high school, the textbooks are just going to say it was a border dispute. All right, World War I. Now, my students, and I even remember me in high school, Jim, thinking that World War I was forever ago. Well, I want to reframe that and make it as close as it possibly can be. Both of my grandfathers were lied into the American expeditionary forces in order to engage in that war. In World War II, my father, my wife's father, my only uncle were all engaged in World War II. So you can't get any closer than your grandparents and your parents' generations being involved in world wars to bring it home to you in the present. 
So World War One. Uh, I'm going to do just the same thing. I'm going to point to familiar history and yet add a little bit of a frame to that and critical thinking for people to recognize that, by golly, that was a complete lie. So when um, students and people think about why the United States engaged in World War I, there's a uh, central part or central reason called the Zimmerman Telegram. Now, the Zimmerman Telegram uh, was, let me find that up here, here, and uh, this was intercepted by the British. The British were spying on all American transatlantic cable communications and espionage, as you know, is an act of war. You know, everyone does it. Uh, it's not a big deal. There's no evidence that the Germans were engaged in the tapping into the cable in order to pick up the American messages. But the Zimmerman telegram is lied to um, in misrepresented in the textbooks. So let's take a moment and see what this non-controversial history actually was. So, we so have you're telling me, Carl, the Zimmerman telegram was authentic and it, it was a bona fide proposal to Mexico should the United States decide to enter World War I against Germany that they would join an alliance to recover Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico for, for Mexico uh, uh, on behalf of their common cause against the United States. Indeed. But let's take a step back and consider in this war, the British had the most powerful Navy in the world and they blockaded Germany and they forbid and uh, they prevented any nation from trading with Germany in a time of war, which of course the British should do. Now the Germans in contrast, they had submarines they took the strategy of allowing the British to go ahead and have command above the sea level on the oceans, where the Germans took advantage of a technological breakthrough in order to operate underneath the oceans to compensate for the superior British presence on top of the ocean. There's a lot that you can say from this, but I just want to make the point that the British made it uh, impossible to trade with Germany while encouraging every country to trade with Britain to maximize their war material to be able to engage in this war, which of course makes sense. The Germans in January of 1917 determined that they needed to stop those other nations trading with Britain. So imagine that you're advising the German government of what to do and how to best proceed. You would regarding the United States shipping to Britain, you would attempt to talk them out of it by saying, look, uh, the British are preventing you trading from us. We need to prevent you trading with Britain now. You don't challenge the British because they would, they would physically stop you and sink your vessel if you refused. We're going to do the same. You need to stay away from England in this war. Now, these aren't government ships. These are private merchants choosing to do business with a nation that we're at war with. So we're going to blow them out of the water if they continue. If they approach Britain, we're going to sink them. Now, this isn't a threat to the government of the United States. We want you to stay neutral, but just don't do trade with Britain. Now, Germany considered that there was a possibility that that strategy would work, 
and that that communication would make sense to people. I mean, it makes sense when I'm talking to you uh, that Germany would have an interest to not have people trading with their enemy, but should the United States take that as a reason to spin their way into declaring a war against Germany, they wanted to pitch this idea to Mexico. Now, I don't have any historical information about how the Germans perceive the likelihood that the Mexicans would accept, but we do have the history of how Mexico received this message. They did evaluate it. Their um, military analysis and conclusion was basically, fuck no, we're not doing that. They saw right through it instantly that this was a way that the Germans were trying to talk the Mexicans into being the target of American military force rather than the Americans targeting and killing Germans. So the Mexican military said, nah, um, we respectfully uh, appreciate your offer to help us, but we decline your offer. The Zimmerman telegram was the principal reason that the United States used to foment an emotional response against Germany and gain the war. But let's ask a few questions, Jim. Was there any national security threat to the United States? If there was, it's not at all obvious what that would have been. Now, the only security threat was the British intercepting American communications. And the Zimmerman telegram was the rational position of the Germans saying, we don't want war with the United States, but if our attempt for neutrality fails and the United States declares war on Germany, because Germany isn't going to declare war on the United States, uh, then to try to deflect American military onto Mexico. Now, the textbooks that our children read they just mention the Zimmerman telegram, but they don't go into taking a couple of steps of analysis is that there's no security threat against the United States. This is a war of choice. And again, the context of history that I'm allowing people to see is that this is a, uh, another example of historical choice for a war. Now, this war killed 20 million people, Jim. Both of my grandfathers were involved. Uh, my dad's dad, uh, my father said that he would never talk about the war and that when the subject came up, he would turn darkly serious and he would simply say, I do not tell war stories. My father says is that he believed that uh, he was one of the people fighting in the trenches. My uh, grandfather on my father's side owned a print shop so that would be the type of profession that would get you into the trenches. My mother's father was a pneumatic engineer for the air pressure braking system of trains. So he always had nice stories of being in Paris and French food and French women. But um, my papa on my mom's side would always say that, yes, he did hear the darkest stories imaginable of those fighting in the trenches. So, any analysis that we want to provide for this, Jim? Well, I just think it's fascinating as a sequel to the how the United States appropriated half of Mexico that the Germans would have played on that history in order to attempt to motivate Mexico to open a second front against the United States should the U.S. become engaged in 
war against Germany. Yeah, and even our high school students are taught clearly that this was a war over colonialism. This was the uh, the Europeans led by the French and the British and the Germans being kind of a relative newcomer to basically take over all of the world that they possibly could. Uh, in addition, we should also know that any protest against the war in the United States was made illegal by the Espionage Act. And the, um, the United States government went so far as to arrest and put into prison what became the third-party candidate, Eugene Debs, for speaking for the United States Constitution and against the or against slavery, Debs understood the letter of the law of the Sedition Act that you can't interfere with the United States draft of soldiers into World War One. So he carefully constructed speeches about the importance of the First Amendment to the Constitution of freedom of speech and the importance that the United States had determined fairly recently at that time of our history that we were not going to have any type of slavery, any involuntary servitude. And even though his speeches by their text were not in violation of the law, Debs was arrested and uh, he was put into prison with the legal analysis of the war leaders of the day saying, well, okay, he didn't violate the law, but it was clearly his intent and it was the effect of his actions that disrupted uh, the ability of the United States to draft Americans into that war. Sounds on the line of the pre-crime unit that we see in certain science fiction films, including uh, with Tom Cruise, where you're supposed to prevent crime by arresting people you suspect might commit them, which, of course, is a blatant violation of the Constitution, the provisions that have extended from the Magna Carta forward for protecting civil liberties and legal rights. Indeed. So, Jim, uh, with your personal family, do you have family members that uh, are connected to this war in World War I that would be helpful to provide information and background? Carl, I may. My father served in World War II in the U.S. Army. I, of course, served in the Marine Corps in the Vietnam era, but I'm actually glad that I was never in country because I've come to regard that as a huge mistake. I have a brother who is a conscientious objector, and when his his uh, draft ward heard his case, they may have been startled to have a, had a letter in support of his sincerity from a regular active duty Marine Corps captain because I knew my brother very well and supported, and by vote of three to two, he was classified as a conscientious objector and did not have to depart the country for Canada, which had been his intent had he been required to serve. Muhammad Ali, of course, served a magnificent example by refusing induction to fight in Vietnam because he he didn't have any problem with those people over there. And, uh, you know, this is one of the many reasons we so revere him to this day. Indeed. Indeed. All right, well, let's go to Vietnam. And again, let's provide a little bit of the historical context that is um, – conservative and uncontested. So the nation of Vietnam, um, that territory was taken over by the French as a colony. 
And we need to be clear about what that means. You have a foreign nation invading where you live, claiming ownership over the land. And um, if anybody wanted to argue with the French or any of the colonial powers, they would have to face the advanced military and the weapons of those countries. So the name of the game of colonialism was to be a parasite and to maximize the riches going to an oligarchy of controlling nations that would get the wealth from those resources, as well as to use the local labor as, um, as close to slave labor as you could get away with. That's colonialism. That was what Vietnam suffered under with the French. Now, oh, with World War I, let's uh, remind ourselves of the propaganda that my two grandfathers received. There were two major talking points that are still in the books today. One, and these are brilliant. I think these are the best uh, war propaganda lines. Uh, they must have been very proud of themselves. Remember, this is no national security threat, but how Americans were talked into this war, Jim, was this was a war to end all wars. Awesome. Two, this is a war to make the world safe for democracy. Now, in hindsight, everyone knows that that was bullshit because all that happened at the end of the war was not to make the world safe for democracy. It was a transfer where the losing nation's colonies became the property of the winning nations. You know, Carl, one of the striking features of this line of rationale for going to war is found today in such a mixed message that uh, Rachel Maddow on uh, MSNBC will continually become outraged about alleged Russian hacking for which there's no proof whatsoever to interfere with our sacred democracy when we're actually in armed conflict to depose the democratically elected president of Syria, just as we undermined the democratically elected government of Iran as long ago as 1953, the democratically elected president of Chile, and many other, as many as 80 or more coups and assassinations around the world. The hypocrisy of the media today is simply overwhelming. Yeah, they are a absolutely owned and controlled propaganda arm. And again, to remind people of what you already know with history, is that historical empires, dictatorships, you got to control three areas to make it work, Jim. You got to control the government to have the policies that you want. You need to control what is used for money. This is key to enrich yourselves and your minions. You got to, if you're going to have a rogue state empire, you got to pay off a lot of people. So you have to have access to what is used for money. And that'll be the second hour that we're going to be engaging in. And you have to control the media. You have to tell the adults on an ongoing basis that all of this is good. It's for their benefit. And you need to control public education, which will be one of our, our segments, in order to indoctrinate the children that um, the United States is a virtuous city on a hill and whatever is we're doing, it's for America, freedom. Um, but as you brilliantly point out, as um, one of our founding fathers for hopefully a new America, is that the lies are just paper thin. They're the most ridiculous propaganda. And um, 
But you got to imagine the chutzpah uh, of these people and appreciate the boldness of them as a as a really viable opponent. And Jim, as a teacher of history, I'll toss this in here too. I really don't have a problem with evil. I think that that should be a, a legitimate alternative. If people want to go evil, I don't recommend it. I don't think that they're going to like that path. I think that we have plenty of examples that they eat their own, that um, you really don't want to go down there, but the good people need to face up for it. And if all we're going to do is be sheep, then perhaps the wolves need to feast more on us until we organize and decide to grow up and stand up. Well, of course, as a champion of human rights, we acknowledge everyone's uh, entitlement to believe whatever they want, which isn't the same as allowing them to take any action they like. Where (laughs) here, I think you have, in the case of the Vietnam War, a stunning indictment where as much as three and a half million people were killed, a loss of 58,000 Americans, but we were killing over a, a thousand civilian children, men and women, every day through high altitude bombing. And as in the case of our entry into World War One, as in the case of our war against Mexico, it was predicated upon a fabricated claim. In this instance, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which is now admitted to have been a contrived false flag to manipulate public opinion for war, as were the predecessors we've been discussing today. Absolutely. So let's take a look at the history of the Vietnam War and apply a little bit of critical thinking to this. So Vietnam is a colony. Uh, you have World War I. The whole world is told that the Great War was about making the world safe for democracy. So at the conclusion of that war, Ho Chi Minh, who spoke English fluently and appreciated the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, went to the League of Nations and the, uh, the conference to determine the outcome of the war uh, at Versailles, and he petitioned that Vietnam should have their independence, the French should leave. After all, the world was promised this was a war to make the world safe for democracy. Of course, on the inside, he was laughed at and said, basically, to, uh, to go beyond my school teacher vocabulary, no, nah, bitch, you're ours. You will remain a colony. Ho Chi Minh went back. You had a second world war. Again, the rhetoric of World War II was, oh, these are bad dictators, and uh, there should not be dictators. Okay, the conclusion of that war, Ho Chi Minh again petitions for the independence of Vietnam and is basically told, again, ah, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? And again, denied. Vietnam then started what is framed in their history as a war for their independence against the invaders, the occupiers, the French. And eventually, through the power of guerrilla warfare, were able to defeat the French. Now, Jim, I'm sure you're aware of this history, and uh, almost no Americans are. It certainly isn't in the ordinary textbooks. I think I saw this in one AP U.S. history textbook that when the French became reluctant to stay in Vietnam from the overwhelming costs, the U.S. paid the French to stay in Vietnam. Were you aware of that? Not until our conversation here today. Very stunning, in fact. And, you know, the fact that we supported 
uh, 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 Ho Chi Minh in his warfare against Japan, but denied his petition for independence for Vietnam after the war and then uh, paid to keep uh, uh, Vietnam as a colony of France was all outrageous. Uh, 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 General MacArthur had advised against becoming engaged in a land war in Asia. Uh, we went ahead and became involved anyway. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's duplicity here, aided and abetted by Robert McNamara, alas, who was in many ways a very fine man, is one of the other dark chapters in American history, alas. The U.S. was paying for, at its most, 80% of France's war costs. Finally, France left. The issue of what to do in Vietnam went to the United Nations. Surprisingly to me, in retrospect, in case this was all just a, it may have just been a cover story, the United Nations agreed that a two-year time period would pass, and then the people of Vietnam would have an election to unify. The United States wanted to become the new colonial power, and we pushed for a Western-friendly Southern Vietnam government. Ho Chi Minh was the people's leader, and so you got to understand that we're talking about a democracy here, okay? People paint the Vietnam War as being against communism. But this is a democracy, an agreement for an election for a democracy. Now, Ho Chi Minh had um, more social programs than in the West that they would fund as a democratically elected government and then under the review of the Vietnamese people. So the two-year time period uh, is getting close to being a reality for an election. The people of Vietnam overwhelmingly want Ho Chi Minh as their elected leader, and they certainly do not want a Western and especially U.S.-friendly leader. The South Vietnamese government, seeing the writing on the wall and predicting that they would get wiped out in the election, asked the United States for approval to cancel the election. The United States gives that approval. This begins an internal war for what the Vietnamese feel is the right for their own self-determination rather than a puppet of the United States. The U.S. starts sending in military advisors, and now we catch up to what people are familiar with in the history. And, of course, this is one more example where the United States has interpreted the actions of a strong nationalist leader who wants to use the resources of his own country for the benefit of his fellow citizens. As a communist, it happened not only with, with Ho in Vietnam, but, of course, Fidel Castro in relation to Cuba, who you know, nationalize the holdings of United Fruit and, and Anaconda Copper for the benefit of the Cuban people. Hugo Chavez in Venezuela was similarly demonized. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi, a classic case where he actually was creating something close to the most humane society ever to be established uh, on the face of earth by sharing the wealth of Libya, national health care, national public education, warehouses stocked with food, Anyone who was hungry could go and get all they could possibly need. If you had a health problem that couldn't be dealt with in Libya, he would fly you and a friend or relative anywhere in the world, all expense paid by the government. He was also, however, introducing the gold dinar, which would rapidly become the currency of all of Africa. 
and developing the Great Waterworks Project, which would have turned North Africa into a veritable oasis. This was opposed by the French, who were alarmed at Gaddafi's growing influence, and by the Rothschild banking empire, which we know from WikiLeaks revelations of Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. It's despicable that this society became the target of a massive NATO assault, slaughtering the people, where Gaddafi was brutally murdered en route to surrender to a location specified by Hillary Clinton. She had his convoy interdicted, and Gaddafi was brutally castrated, sodomized, and killed at her instruction. Disgraceful. Typical of recent American history, sad to say. It absolutely is. Uh, I want to make one more point on the pitching and the selling of the Vietnam War. So we did have the Gulf of Tonkin event, and if people want to see a nice little film clip of McNamara admitting that the Gulf of Tonkin event never happened, this was uh, part of the um, 2003 Academy Award-winning documentary, The Fog of War. But I I want to uh, emphasize a part of this, of how President Johnson pitched this war. So you have this event, and then, you know, you get the evil insiders talking about how to initiate this war of aggression. President Johnson went on television at midnight in order to announce to the American people that the United States Navy was attacked by Vietnam and that the United States would engage in self-defensive measures to protect our military. So can you imagine, Jim, if a U.S. president interrupts broadcast at midnight? I mean, that signals an emergency, yes? Well, it's another aspect of a PSYOP, and most Americans are very tired at the end of the day. Many may have already gone to bed, so they're not going to be thinking as clearly and precisely as under other circumstances. Clearly, this was a theatrical event, which was part of the uh, psychological operation in order to manipulate the American people into supporting another needless and unnecessary war, just as occurred with the contrivance of the events of 9-11, to bring us into engagement with modern Arab states in the, mid- in the Middle East that were serving as counterbalance Israel's domination of the entire region. Yeah. I want to point out a great quote, one of my favorites. So this is Arthur Sylvester. He was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs. Uh, He was given a press conference regarding Vietnam, and this was reported by um, a guy who was there. And he said that Sylvester said to the audience, look, if you think any American official is going to tell you the truth, then you're stupid. Did you hear that? Stupid. I like the analogy, too. If you were being tried in a court of law, you would see a prosecuting attorney. This person would wear a nice suit, be well-groomed, and show high levels of education and intelligence. You would, however, fully understand that everything coming out of that person's mouth and all evidence presented would not be for the comprehensive facts to be known, but only those facts and evidence to win. In other words, special pleading, citing only those aspects of the evidence favorable to your side, like a new used car salesman trying to promote the sale of an automobile because it has a wonderful stereo and leather upholstery and ignoring that it needs a ring job and has a shot transmission. Yeah. 
My older brother, Ken, the psychologist, from time to time, he has to go to court in defense of uh, usually children who claim that they need to have psychological services that the school district denies, the school district having motivation to minimize the investment for students. And my brother, Ken, tells me stories that when the school district's lawyers question him, he is absolutely clear of exactly what you described. This is going to be a well-educated, well-spoken nicely dressed person, but that person only has one reason for talking to my brother, and that's to make him look like a stupid liar. That's the only reason for saying anything. And um, my older brother, bless him, he says that he has to be very careful because he understands that he's out of his league, that these lawyers are very clever. So he always slows them down to make sure that everyone in the room clearly understands the questions one at a time and his answers one at a time to be able to distinguish between somebody who just wants to lay out the best factual evidence from his perspective as a professional versus what becomes clear in the courtroom drama of an attorney attempting to manipulate the statements in order to provide for the appearance of that somehow this expert witness doesn't know what he's talking about. Yes, yes, exactly, yes. I have a case in New York City of uh, someone now a good friend who was the target of an attempted murder. Uh, it, it, it was perpetrated by his dentist. I'm now convinced that the government has a string of assassins who are dentists that can induce uh, fluoride uh, poisoning that looks as though it's a, a natural phenomenon. He only survived because he was a vegan and drank a, f a fruit smoothie when he got home. Uh, his teeth to this day are decaying, falling out of his, his mouth. He's in terrible shape. But when he sought to defend himself in court against a, a perverted prosecution against him, when he sought to bring uh, this evidence uh, of the attempted murder to the uh, 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 attention of the authorities, they even denied him the right to present evidence and witnesses of whom I would have been one. It was the most blatant violation of standard procedure imaginable, and that's because the weight of the evidence on his side was simply overwhelming. So in order to prevail, the New York District Attorney's Office did not even allow him to present evidence or witnesses. And that's one of the take-home lessons that you and I, with our again, close to 100 years of academic training and professional experiences to suggest and to factually ex uh, assert for the consideration of the public is that we're so lied to on an ongoing basis. The purpose of the lies is to go ahead and continue to orchestrate what we see that I can best academically... Carl, your, your voice broke up there when you said oh, the purpose of the lie. The purpose of the lies is to go ahead and continue to nurture and have this rogue state empire and any serious threat to the empire seems to be the target of disruption and uh, invalidation. I just got to say how much I admire the clarity and organization of your presentations, Carl. I mean, you're an exemplary uh, teacher, uh, I have endless admiration for your thorough preparation, research, uh, organization, and clarity of what you want to convey. 
Uh, I'm so much aboard with our doing this series. I'm just delighted to be participating with you in this endeavor to make some very, very important points about history and politics, the difference between truth and illusion, uh, uh, familiar to a very wide audience. Good. Well, we'll do our best. Let's uh, take a minute of upcoming events for the other three conversations that we'll have, and then we'll close it up. How about that? Perfect. All right. So where we're going next is the most challenging topic, in my experience, is understanding that what we use for money is actually created as a debt owed to private banks. This is incredibly clever. I think one of the themes that we need to emphasize, Jim, is that the people who are our opponents are highly intelligent. And um, what they do with money is incredibly clever. Um, But at the same time, for over 300 years, we have the solutions. Did you know that Ben Franklin wrote a pamphlet that the colony of Pennsylvania was able to operate without taxes by creating what is used for money as a positive number and just buying what they wanted? Did you know? No, that's sensational. That's coming up. Um, So the solutions to our economy are really can be corrected almost instantly. And this has been documented by many of our brightest minds for 300 years. That'll be the topic of our next talk. Talk. Um, I do want to talk about public education. I have a 12-essay series on that that really I can demonstrate professionally that it's just bullshit to stupefy Americans to accept what they're told. And the last one is going to be taking a look at kind of a practical philosophy, both to consider in the immediacy, what should human beings do faced with this evil? I mean, what is possible to be able to experience and express virtue in this condition? And uh, I think being able to approach what you're doing with virtue is is always uh, a wise topic of interest. Carl, this is sensational. I want to congratulate you on the excellence of your presentation in part one of a four-part series for the real deal that's intended to have the broad impact highly informative for the benefit of the American public. Would you have a final parting word before we conclude today? Uh, The facts will always set people free. Probably will piss them off first. But um, hopefully we're able to build bridges for people and just provide a choice and encourage people to have the intellectual integrity and moral courage to stand up for what's right. This is Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, thanking my special guest, Carl Herman, for the first of a four-part series, and all of you for watching. Did you know that Sandy Hook was a staged event where no children died? That the school had been closed since 2008, and there were no children there? Thirteen experts, including six Ph.D., current or retired college professors, Prove that it was a two-day FEMA drill presented to the public as a real event. We even have the manual. There was a rehearsal on the 13th going live on the 14th. Some participants became confused and put up donation sites the day before. Even the shooter was recorded as dying before the event. You have been played by Eric Holder and Barack Obama. Now Hillary wants to extend the deception by posing as a champion of Sandy Hook to confiscate your guns. 
don't let yourself be played. Nobody died at Sandy Hook. If you want to get a grip on just what fake news is, then I'd suggest you get the book, Nobody Died in Boston, at PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com.